0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Brian Curtis, the editor at large of The Ringer. This is the Pressbox podcast. Let me ask you a question: Did you see what happened in the playoffs last night? These days, if you missed a game, you'd say, "Sure, I saw the highlights on Twitter." But ten or twenty years ago, the answer would have been, "I saw the highlights on Sports Center." And a decade before that, if you missed the game, you'd sigh and say. I didn't see anything. I just caught the one or two crappy highlights they showed on the 11 o'clock news. The TV sports highlight has been the fans' companion for decades, and if you read the news about the declining ratings of SportsCenter, you could conclude that we're near the end of the highlights' life cycle, at least as something that can power a TV show on its own. So I thought the TV highlight deserved a proper biography or at least an oral history delivered by the men who have been doing highlights for the last 50 years. This episode is called The Life and Death of the TV Sports Highlight.
1: If a listener can imagine this, when we used to come on and do the sports, say in, uh, example, 1978, 11 o'clock news, we were actually giving the audience the score for the first time. In other words, I'd say 80% of the audience, maybe higher, didn't know the score of the Yankee game unless they listened to it or watched it when you came on. You, were, you had a captive audience. So it's a whole different game now. I, I really uh, think of myself as being very fortunate to uh, have been a sportscaster in that time. It was easier to try and make a name for yourself than it is today.
0: That's Warner Wolf, one of the pioneering wiseacres in the field of TV sports highlights. Back in the 60s and 70s, Wolf was the 11 o'clock sports guy at stations like Washington DC's WTOP and New York's WABC. The first thing you need to understand about these early days is that highlights weren't everywhere. They were scarce.
1: The network used to send down mostly film clips and that's what you used. Uh, However, there were also, locally, you could get, like, a videotape from the Redskin game if you taped the game or the Senators game at that point. And another outlet was, in those days, if you went to the movies on Saturdays, usually, between the feature and the cartoon, if you were lucky enough, they would show you sports highlights. I'm talking about the movie theaters. And usually, it was narrated by a couple guys, but the one was Marty Clipman and uh, man, I said, that's great. See,
0: highlights. Warner Wolf then was a kind of knowledge broker. And if you missed his highlights, and I'm just old enough to remember these days, you had to wait until morning to find out what happened or place a desperate call to the sports desk of your local paper. What Wolf discovered was that great highlights are rarely about the pictures. They are about the wit of the men and women narrating them. Wolf never used a teleprompter. He would look directly into the camera and recite a script he'd memorized. And when he spoke on TV, he'd written every word himself.
1: The reason I always wrote my own stuff was because of the late sportscaster Jim Simpson. He was a network sportscaster, did everything. NBC, World Series, uh, Wimbledon, uh, Super Bowl, whatever. And when I got out of the Army, finished college, went, got out of the Army, he was nice enough, I, could, I, I saw his uh, sportscast and he said you know i just have one piece of advice uh, actually two the first one was always write your own stuff because if you don't people will be able to tell you're reading somebody else's material and that always stuck with me the other thing he said always try and end your sports cast with a smile so i always did <laughs>
0: In later years, Sports Center became a giant box store for catchphrases. Wolf was a pioneer here too. His parents were vaudevillians, and what does every vaudevillian need? A hook, a signature line. Wolf's came in 1968.
1: One night, I had this. Uh, it was a great defensive play. Nate Thurmond uh, used to play in the NBA for the Warriors. He was a great defensive center, and I said, "Man, look at this block by Nate Thurmond." on uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and there was no tape. So I'm sitting there with my face on the camera. So I said, man, look, at it. this is great. Wait till you see it. Never came up. So again, I tried a third time. I said, man, you ought to see this. It's really, if you want to show how to block a shot, nothing. So finally, the uh, director's name was Ernie Bauer at the time. So right near the camera, I said, hey, Ernie, Let's go to the videotape. And boom, the tape came up. And after the show, he came up to me and said, You know what? He said, Man, he said, That's a great cue. He said, I could be doing 10,000 things in the studio. When I heard you say, Let's go to the videotape, I punched it.
0: And that was it. Let's fast forward to the 1980s and let's go to San Diego, California. There on Channel 8 News is a man named Ted Leitner. He has big glasses and salt-and-pepper hair, and most nights he's jabbing his finger at the screen. When he does, the whole newsroom, all these grizzled TV types who couldn't give a damn about what was on TV, would stop to see what he would say. See, Leitner, who ruled San Diego like Ron Burgundy, was different. Warner Wolfe used sports highlights to delight, to entertain. Leitner used them to enrage.
2: I had a news director, when I would walk down from my office to go down to the studio, he would he would, sit, as I would say, hey, piss him off today. Literally, to get out there. He knew that was my job because they would do the marketing research and people would say, oh, I hate that guy. I hate that guy. What did he say? He said this, 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 this. So they realized they hate him, kind of the Howard Cosell thing, which I was always uncomfortable with. But they hate him, but they watch him and they know what he says and that kind of thing. And this news director, Jim Holtzman was his name, would get that and say, come on, get out there. Piss them off. That's what you're here for. And I thought, this is wonderful. This is great. Do whatever you want within the context of three and a half minutes and just have fun with it. Now, very few, nobody ever did that before, for the most part. Nobody's ever doing it now.
0: It was a way of doing highlights that owed something to Network's Howard Beale. For example, Leitner didn't like hockey. So instead of showing hockey highlights at 11 o'clock... He'd show 10 seconds of two hockey players beating the living hell out of each other. What incredible athletes, he'd exclaim, never even bothering to give the score of the game. Leitner treated auto racing, which he didn't consider a real sport, with similar disdain. So then I
2: got to the point of instead of actually using racing highlights, quote unquote, we had a a stationary camera that was for traffic, for traffic updates within the news before they got to the sports. So. I would have them activate the traffic camera and show you want some highlights, you want some racing highlights, you want some car highlights, and they would shoot the Interstate 8 or the Interstate 805,
0: and I'd do about six, seven seconds of it and come back out. It wasn't just fans Leitner enraged. He enraged players, too. He'd show a highlight of one of the Padres circling the bases and say something like, I have never seen an athlete with less desire and zest to play. Not surprisingly, the players hated this. When Dave Winfield left... To
2: go to New York,
0: they decided Jerry Turner would replace him,
2: and Jerry Turner couldn't catch a, a ball unless it stopped rolling. You know, any one of those guys. <laughs> I feel, so on the air, I'm just I'm doing this, and we have highlights, and I'm saying, you know, Dave Winfield's gone, and they told us today that it's going to be Jerry Turner. And I said, you know what? If you enter a Volkswagen in the Indy 500, you better know a hell of a shortcut. <laughs> and believe it or not, Jerry Turner took umbridge at that. <laughs> So I go to the ballpark the next day, and I'm standing around the batting cage, and he's standing there, he's giving me the evil eye, and then he walks over and he says, Volkswagen, huh? Volkswagen? And he's right here, and I'm thinking, I'm dead. I'm dead. It's going to be Duke City right here with this guy. At least I was younger then, so I had a shot, a small shot, but a shot.
0: And that was one of those that sticks in my mind. Leitner didn't write a script. What he said on the news was whatever popped into his head. For a time, his station installed a buzzer beneath the desk so that production people would have a cue when to roll the highlights. Out of protest, Leitner held down the buzzer for the whole newscast, and eventually the plan was dropped. The 1980s was a golden age of local news. Leitner's daily workload amounted to three minutes and change of stream of consciousness on the afternoon news, and another three minutes and change at 11 o'clock, along with some play-by-play work on the side. For this, he made a small fortune. And it's nobody's business. But to show how wonderful it was, I started for
2: $30,000 in 1978. And 10 years later, I was making a million five in a local, nothing, 29th market, CBS affiliate in television. Because most of the people, as even they showed me the marketing research, which they shouldn't have done. <laughs> it's bad negotiating. Look at this. 60% of the people watch because of you. So then when I had other offers to go other places, it was like, hey, no,
0: you're staying. Here's more money thank you, God. If you're adjusting for inflation, Leitner was making $2.8 million in today's money, and there were other perks that came with doing highlights. I can't say women, can I?
2: <laughs> but I have to be honest, I was young, it was wonderful, and I had this little bit of celebrity, you know, what I could, I could look at, at Hollywood types and think, wow, what are they doing? Because I got to be honest with you, I had women calling me on the phone at after the 11 o'clock news, that wanted to meet me in the parking lot. And as is, I'm sorry, to answer your question, that's a great perk. That's a great perk. Like John Lennon was when he first saw Elvis and they were throwing panties in, in the night, you know, and, and leaving hotel keys for Elvis. And, and John Lennon turned to his friend and said, That's a
0: good job. <laughs> and I felt similarly, the same way, you know what I mean? The TV sports highlight and the status of the man or woman delivering it, changed forever with the arrival of ESPN Sports Center. Highlight purveyors went national. You weren't telling San Diego to stay classy. You were talking to everyone.
3: When I got to ESPN in 1988, I had never done a lick of television before. And when I did my very first audition, they had called and said, would you be interested in coming to ESPN? And my
0: response was, to do what? That's Charlie Steiner, who was an anchor for 14 years on SportsCenter. When Steiner came to ESPN, he was a 39-year-old radio veteran who'd just done a stint as a play-by-play man for the Jets.
3: What well, we're trying to rebuild SportsCenter, um, which was just a little sports cable station show uh, that was on the verge of extinction in 88. So I came in, and later, of course, Keith and Dan and Robin and all of When I auditioned for the job, they gave me what was called a shot sheet where individual scenes of games unfolded with some words that were to correspond with
0: the pictures. Never having done television before, I had no idea what the hell it was. SportsCenter had been around since ESPN's first day on the air, September 7th, 1979. But it wasn't until magazine veteran John Walsh was hired nearly a decade later that the highlights acquired a governing intelligence. According to the book, Those Guys Have All the Fun, Walsh thought an episode of SportsCenter ought to be structured like a newspaper. The most important stories would be out front, and the rest would be a mix of news reciting and news breaking. Moreover, an anchor shouldn't just describe the highlights you are already watching. He should tell you a story about the game. When I started doing highlights
3: in the very beginning, it, uh, it was kind of like one play by play riff to the next play by play riff to the next play by play riff. John Walsh, who, of course, the high potentate of Sports Center and the, the genius who put it all together, called me aside one day and said, the high, You're missing the point on highlights. It's not play by play. What it is is telling the story through various pictures. And so instead of saying, Here's the two and two, and he ba- bounces one to the right side, you know on this ground ball to uh, the second base, booted by the second baseman, whatever it was, and then you go into whatever your riff is. So it was a big difference between a play-by-play highlight and the highlight of telling a story and these are the plays that make the story. And that was something it took me a while to kind of um, find the
0: right balance. The catchphrases that Warner Wolf had tried out decades before were becoming, as Dan Patrick once noted, America's primary form of communication. By 1997, Patrick and Keith Olbermann, who were hosting the 11 p.m. Sports Center, had 76 catchphrases they were using, gone, and it's deep, but I don't think it's playable, and drooling the drool of regret into the pillow of remorse. The old hierarchy of TV sports was flipped. Now the guys doing the highlights, rather than the play-by-play man, was king. Sports center anchors started to hear their catchphrases repeated back to them by fans and players and journalists who were writing fawning profiles. The sportscaster was, for lack of a better term, Enfuego. We
3: were the last ones to realize that, ooh, this is becoming a big deal. Um, early on, you had to explain to folks what ESPN was, and to some slower folks, how to spell it. But then around 1990-91, as SportsCenter was beginning to evolve, truly we were the last ones to know. We were just a bunch of jamokes working in a concrete bunker in Bristol, Connecticut, playing sports TV. Then all of a sudden, then we started going out and doing games. And in the airports, people would, you know, turn around and, and, and look and recognize and say hello. And then there was always that one go, da-da-da, da-da-da, like that was the first time we heard it. Uh, and then, so it, it was over a period of maybe in within three years of my arrival, ESPN had graduated from that sports cable station in Connecticut into ESPN. Um, and then we had the Rose story, the Tyson story, the Magic Johnson story, and that's when Center became a bigger deal, and it became a news-gathering agency, which it had never been and never dreamed of being. And so you throw all of that into the mix, that within a couple of years, ESPN became a big deal, and again, going through an airport. Uh, or walking into a saloon,
0: uh, it became a totally different thing than I could ever have imagined. SportsCenter's golden age lasted well into the new century, with anchors like Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen, and Scott Van Pelt. The show never really had any serious competition for highlights on TV. It turned out the competition would come from the internet, where around 2010, Twitter denizens like Jose3030 would hasten the death of the TV highlight. When we called him up for an interview, Jose 3030 asked to remain anonymous. Here's what we can say about him. His name really is Jose. He's 36 years old, lives on the East Coast, and works in IT. Jose took a strange path to becoming a highlight broker. Between 2010 and 2014, his boom years in the trade, he was living with elderly parents. This took up all his time and most of his money. So late at night, when he needed something happy in his life, Jose would flip on an NBA game, and he would make highlights.
4: I'm at home already. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not really spending any more money than I'm not. And I also had a day job, so because I had a day job, I was able to basically go home and look forward to, you know, watching basketball, which is, you know, an outlet for everybody that loves basketball. So I was able to watch basketball. I was able to help other people out, post videos, and then go to, go to sleep you know, with a smile on my face and then ready to go to the day job in the morning again, and do it all over again.
0: Highlights almost became a form of therapy for Jose, along with other online masters of the form, C.J. Fogler and later the guys of The Cauldron, and especially Deadspin's Timothy Burke. Jose began to dramatically change the highlight as we understood it. The first thing someone like Jose could do is work faster than the TV guys, The old order of things had a small army of production assistants in Bristol, Connecticut, watching games and cutting highlights for SportsCenter. Jose was doing that instantly and alone. Think of the highlight of Russell Westbrook traveling at the end of Game 1 of the Western Conference Finals. It felt like you were watching the highlight on Twitter while Marv Albert was still describing the replay on the air.
4: And everything was done through my computer, TV tuner card, high-speed internet, really fast computer, so everything that came down the pipe basically was, you know, through uh, HD connection and I would just record things on the actual computer, edit them right on the computer, modify them, you know, splice them, whatever I need to do, put them together and then pump them right out, right through the internet as well. It was pretty seamless, uh, but you wouldn't know it because it was definitely like two minutes, three minutes where I was just going 100 miles an hour the whole time.
0: The second way Jose and others changed the highlight was to change its focus. TV showed us the great plays and the bad plays and maybe a few bloopers. But on Twitter, you could put a spotlight on any meltdown, including those on the broadcast itself. The highlight was replaced by the lowlight. What do you remember about the 2016 NFL draft? The grateful smile of Jared Goff or ESPN's Ed Werder accidentally calling linebacker Miles Jack, Miles Jackass? Jose's greatest low light came on April 12, 2011, when he was watching a game between the Lakers and the Spurs. With under seven minutes left in the third quarter, Kobe Bryant got called for a technical foul. TNT's TV cameras caught him in a close-up on the bench seconds afterwards, shouting an anti-gay slur at official Benny Adams. Jose went to work.
4: just like seeing kind of the trend of the game, uh, things got chippier and, chippier and chippier and chippier, and then, you know, there was a foul call, and then, Essentially, you know, he got ticked off and and went berserk.
0: Bryant blamed the slur on frustration. He wound up being fined $100,000. A number of websites tried to hire Jose. He demurred because Jose, like Wolf or Leitner or Steiner, didn't want to be a content machine. He had taste. A couple of years ago, Jose told me, his sister started taking care of his elderly parents, and Jose got a new job working nights. He doesn't make highlights anymore, and he doesn't miss it. This is the universe in which a sportscaster has to do a highlight show today. In twenty thirteen, the newly christened cable channel FS1 wanted its own highlight show to compete with SportsCenter. It hired Jay On Ray, who with Dan O'Toole had done ten years on the Canadian station TSN, hosting the northern version of SportsCenter, the one in which the final R and E are inverted. On Ray, like nearly everyone who has done sports highlights over the last twenty years, cited David Letterman as a creative influence.
5: I was naturally drawn to Dan and Keith and and Craig Kilborn and Rich Eisen. Um, You know, the guys doing the 1 a.m. shows I thought were having the most fun, and that seemed like the most fun to me. And I guess that informed things a little bit for me, but I was also obsessed with David Letterman growing up. The original late-night show on NBC is the template for kind of everything I've ever done. And I just thought, you know, at the time, people forget how revolutionary that show was. It was so different than all the other talk shows on the air. Johnny Carson was still on at the time when I was young, and he was so polished and so slick. And Letterman was just the opposite of that. You know, having Biff Henderson go out and report on the World Series, uh, having his stagehands do stuff like that, essentially tearing down that fourth wall was so refreshing.
0: Henri and O'Toole had an act. Henri was the tall, funny one. O'Toole was shorter and more deadpan. The problem was they'd gotten the biggest gig of their lives just as the Highlight Show was facing its most intractable problem.
5: Our industry has changed more, in my personal opinion, in the three years we've been here in the States than it had in the 15 years previous to that. And it has everything to do with streaming video and the ability for people to just instantly access things on their phone. Um, You know, I, I just think it's, It didn't change the way we did things, but obviously it did change uh, viewing habits, no question.
0: When FS1 and Fox Sports Live debuted on August seventeenth, 2013, people said, Thank God, a competitor to ESPN. Then they saw Fox Sports Live, and it was a mess. It was a three-hour-long variety show that included a panel hosted by Carissa Thompson, ex-jock opinionists like Donovan McNabb and Andy Roddick, and oh yeah, Jay and Dan doing highlights.
5: I think that was our issue. we We almost confused the viewer. If you were someone who had heard of Dan and I and might be interested in checking us out, if you flipped over to f s one in those early days, you might go ten minutes or more before you even saw us while the panel was chatting about something, and obviously you know if if you do that, people aren't going to stick around too long so I think in, in the beginning, combining the show seemed like a good idea, but I really wish in the end that we had just done two separate shows.
0: When Fox Sports Live was canceled on January 2016, it was averaging about 87,000 viewers, according to numbers from sports TV ratings that appeared on SI.com. Executive Jamie Horowitz would declare that highlight shows were secondary to opinion shows. Ironically, this would allow Ray's dream of becoming David Letterman to come true. The new, retooled Fox Sports Live is basically a late-night show, with Ray and O'Toole doing lots of bits and interviews with players.
5: Now, we've been given kind of free-range to try it, to try this sort of daily show for sports format that we always wanted to do, and and I think it's going pretty well. It's I mean, it's a little more digestible in the fact that it's a half-hour format. We were on air for a long time in the old format, up to three hours at a time, and it's a lot to ask people to sit, sit through a three-hour show. This half-hour format helps us, and more than that, uh, the other issue with a, with a concept of something like The Daily Show, if you remember uh, when, when Jon Stewart would win, you know, when his show would win Best Emmys for writing, you know, 25, 30 writers would come up on the stage, and you'd be like, holy man, does it take this many people to write that show every day? And the answer is absolutely it does. Um, it takes a ton of talented people to write a show like that. So we don't have that many writers, but we do have writers, and they're terrific. And that's allowed us to put on a show every night that hopefully is something different and something refreshing and something that people want to stick around for.
0: The downside is the old-fashioned sports highlight show, the one on Ray and O'Toole did in Canada, and which they would still love to watch if not host, is gone.
5: We had a show that was unique and truly ours and had our own perspective, and the more you watched it, the more you got our cadences, the more you got our jokes, the more you got our references, and the more you felt like you were a part of something cool, something cultish, something, you know, everyone wants to be in on that. That goes all the way back to me being into Letterman when I was in high school. You know, you felt like you were, you were into something cool, and if, ever, if you knew someone else who was into it, you know, you thought that person was pretty cool, too. And um, that's probably what I'll miss about the way we did the highlight show. Um, and i don 't know if it's ever going to be like that again it's, it's kind of unfortunate in that sense, but, um, but like I said, that's you know we move on and, and we continue, and, and hopefully people like the way we 're doing things now.
0: Over at ESPN, the diminishing power of the highlight was felt perhaps even more dramatically in Charlie Steiner 's day, the sports center anchor's job was to tell us what happened that night. I asked Scott Van Pelt, who started hosting the refitted Midnight sports Center last September, what he thought his job was now.
6: For me, uh, what I can tell you is, at midnight, I'm not, I'm not revealing anything anymore. You know, the days of, of Dan and Keith t- maybe telling you something you didn't know or showing you something you hadn't seen. The only way I'm doing that now is if you've chosen, to, um, to not know. So, now I think you are, as I say, augmenting it with a bit of of opinion, um, adding maybe a bit of context. For why you think things are important, we we'll try to do on our on our hour, maybe a, a different highlight treatment than say the eleven. Maybe uh, occasionally it's a play or two to set up something that was important that might not otherwise be in the high, in, in a in a traditional highlight. In other words, hey, here's three great slam dunks and a guy hit five three pointers. Okay, but here's a guy that got you know a block shot or a defensive rebound that was in a critical sequence or whatever. Try to maybe shine a light on that, uh, as opposed to the thing that you know has been a vine for the past four
0: hours. It might be the motto of the TV sportscaster circa 2016. Is everyone already tired of seeing this vine? Van Pelt felt the evolution of the highlight as much as any anchor at the Worldwide Leader. Back in the late 1990s, when he was at the Golf Channel, Van Pelt got out a post-it note and wrote on it the words, I will never work at ESPN. He thought he was too late that SportsCenter was overflowing with catchphrases, and the possibilities of doing highlights had been exhausted by Dan and Keith and Rich and Stu and Craig. In 2001, Van Pelt did go to ESPN, and he did just fine. But then he saw ESPN begin to scale back its highlights to embrace debate and other gimmicks that began to shove the highlights out of SportsCenter.
6: The full circle on me with, with highlights is that I was the guy that was yelling the loudest, As I felt like SportsCenter was getting away from highlights, that that there's just got to be more. There needs to be more highlights. And now, as as social media has evolved to the point that it is now, I've got an hour that's essentially mine to fill out as I please. And I, I find that I do more kind of conversation and talk about the things and show fewer highlights than I probably thought I would.
0: Using the old Dan and Keith SportsCenter as a cudgel against Van Pelt's version is as unfair as comparing Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show to Johnny Carson's. They do not exist in the same media universe. John,
6: Johnny Carson wasn't gonna wasn't gonna go back in a closet with um, Diana Ross and sing a song. That wasn't what you did, you know. And but Jimmy Fallon can go back there with Adele, and that becomes a, becomes viral content the next day. That that's how that's how that show succeeds on so many different levels. Whereas the show Dan and Keith did, I mean, I, it's it will be fascinating, and I've done it. If you just pushed play on the tees and watched an hour of SportsCenter of what you remember as as being so great, and it was, but if you applied today's sort of standards and snark and cynicism, Twitter would annihilate that show. You know, hey, thanks for the thirty-five second score panel on the Twins game. You know, it's you go to a graphic, a full screen graphic that's on screen for thirty seconds, and if that happened now, people go, what, what, what did did the Machine gets stuck. You know, let's go on to the next. It, there's there'd be no tolerance for that. That the brilliance and the writing and the chemistry, all undeniable. But just the the mechanics of the show. You know what I mean? It's it's. I think people would be fascinated at what they remember and then how it it actually looks. It's just it's just an undeniably different time. You you they couldn't do the that show that way now. They could come in and do a great show, uh, and it, it just it would just be a different a different car they're driving if that makes sense.
0: People don't need highlights on TV anymore, but that presented a trade-off. Van Pell can do stuff Dan and Keith couldn't do. He can do a bad beats segment on gambling, one that's being copied by a new show on FS1. He can have his pal Stanford Steve on. Van Pell could turn the network's marquee sports center into something like his old ESPN radio show, one that revolved around his obsessions.
6: We showed more Oakland University basketball highlights than, than anybody in their right mind would show because they had... a a bunch of they had this k felder this little guard that we liked and they had this kid that only shot threes max hooper and they played pretty entertaining basketball and we started showing them in december and we took them through the end of some made-up tournament in vegas which you know uh it it's it absolutely satisfies it you know uh I'm, i'm i've been empowered i guess you'd say to to show what interests me and stuff like that does and and I have the latitude to to not show maybe you know the things you'd you'd expect. There's there's, there's nothing. Like I'm not nothing. I'm not forced to fit anything. I don't have to show anything. I don't want to show. So uh, this hour is sort of our easel collectively as for our show group.
0: I asked Van Pelt what percentage of his audience at midnight has seen some form of highlights before they get to him.
6: Oh hell, I don't know. And I'm certain. I was going to start to say all of them, but I have to think it's it's well over fifty percent. I don't know. Two thir- thirds. At least seventy-five percent. I mean, I've we you know you get you get audience feedback and and numbers and such. And I don't pay attention uh, by and large, other than that you know we th- there's some good numbers that indicate we do really well with the, with a younger audience. It doesn't surprise me, um, and you know it says that we do really well between eighteen and thirty-four year old males. Well, how many eighteen to thirty-four year old males haven't haven't seen the the Cavs, Hawks highlight by 11. I mean, it can't be, it can't be 10%. Whatever the number is, it's giant. You know, I made some joke in passing last night. We showed some thing with these Raptor things were dancing and I laughed about, you know, kids on the couch in college that are faded out of their minds. And, you know, you get an avalanche of people on Twitter, that are like, you know, I'm high and he, and you can see me, you know what I mean? And, you realize right, that's who you're dealing with, man. Like the guys that were me back in the day in Maryland, they're sitting there watching. But they, they didn't just they didn't just come in at midnight to tell, oh I got to watch Van Pelt to tell me about it, man. I, you, I don't know. I'm I'm not in the I'm not in the revelation business.
0: When Warner Wolf looked into a television camera in 1968, he was in the revelation business, and that was obviously key to the highlight. We could write funny highlights, we could write clever highlights, we could cut together great game footage but revelation was at its core. We stopped loving the highlight when we were no longer surprised by what was in it. As Keith Olbermann used to say, a good craftsman never blames his tools. He thanks his producers. Mine are Joe Fuentes and Tate Frazier, and for the Ace Research work, thanks to Megan Schuster, Riley Magatee, and Caitlin Blosser. This is the Press Box Podcast. I'm Brian Curtis. Thanks for listening.